Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Raphael. What's going on? That is a good question. We are in the midst of a what resurgence in the virus in the United States. But you're not in the United States. I know, but I have family. You know, Kristen does. Oh. I do. And it's like, actually, there's like a family tension where like Kristen's parents are like, you know, like they're they've been they're older and vulnerable, and so that they haven't they've been obeying all the rules, you know. And then, and there's where, like a, where are they? They're in uh, Washington D.C., which is actually not not in a bad place right now. But um, I think it's still just, you know, th- what Kristen's describing our life here in Toronto. And tonight we're going to like a restaurant, and like you know we've been easing into like opening yep. over a long long period of time and case numbers keep falling and so i think there's like this kind of this feeling of like they're they're like when do we get <laughs> to do yeah it, i've had that for a long time with the netherlands because uh, they're so down to earth and they never did masks in the netherlands and somehow the numbers all went down mm-hmm. they ju- they do do social distancing but there was never you you don't have to wear a mask in a store or whatever and the hairdressers opened eight weeks ago and uh, it, they already had a lot of outside seating for restaurants, so people are doing that, and it, it, they, it, it's kind of unfair in the sense that they don't even have to try. It's just oh, it's it's gone, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, Italy today announced like major um, resurgence in, in cases, like seventeen thousand cases or something. But yeah, I'm not even the numbers we're dealing with though are, are so are really small here now. They're like a hundred, hundred and fifty, so. Um, it's pretty low risk, but there's little outbreaks here and there, and then they do contact tracing. It's all like very, very orderly. Is there, I haven't seen any updates on how dangerous it is percentage-wise. Like, what's the level of risk compared to other diseases? Or? Well, I think if you're in America now, it's a very high. Like, if you're living in Florida, it's pretty high risk. No, no, I, I know, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know the statistics. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, like compared to being hit this? by lightning or something. No, more like compared to uh, the flu or to oh, okay. an STD or like. Yeah, they measure this. Or thing. like driving a car or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like per 100,000 is kind of the measure. But then there's this. Well, also it. This, it they are- I, I was. The, 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 not to get too political again, but the, I was looking at the COVID deaths in the US and the Netherlands, and then everybody's always like, oh, Europe does everything so much better. And then it kind of averages to about the same. So it's about 36 per 100,000. Uh, it's not the same. Here, like I was looking at the numbers and it's like, it's 10,000 times more infections in the US per capita than in Canada or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we've had a total of 100,000 cases across the country. Yeah. But it's like, but in... Do you have a lot of testing? Yeah, actually, that was another interesting thing. Like they were boasting about Amer- like testing in California and in Ontario, where I live, which is one third the size of California... We did twice as many tests that same day, so it's like it's well, about, Canada is a better country, so it's no. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like a different set of health policies, right? Like um, and coordination. Kristen actually brought to my attention like there's both good and bad about it because because similar to Europe, we have top down authority in government, right? The parliamentary system kind of gives our government more power to coordinate things. Which, you know, Americans would be like, that's like treading on me or whatever. And like, yeah. you know, the states have a lot of freedom to and flexibility. And it's, you know, there's more cities that are closer yeah. together. I mean, where I live. In- I got tested last week. 
You did, yeah. I, well, I, my mom was like, "I'm gonna visit them up north in the countryside here," and they're like, "Oh yeah, you should on our way. We should like do a test thing together. Like we yeah. should just go for." Some, some well, tests. I, I had a mild cough, so I was like, "Oh, why not? It's, it's yeah. free. Why not do a test?" I think that's the level it's getting to, which is good. That's what that's what it should be, right? Because you might not be have, be symptomatic. Yeah. Um, well, again, in the Netherlands, so. Uh, down to earth so even if you have a flu they're like oh yeah it has to be really severe before we test you and just stay home mostly the policy is like if you're coughing or sneezing or whatever stay home yeah the thing about masks that most people don't get and i i apologize if our it's patronizing for our audience is it is similar in, in asia like prior to covid it's not you're not wearing a mask to prevent yourself from being infected. You're, yeah. you're wearing it to help to prevent you from infecting others. And the yeah. idea that you know whether you're infected or not is, you know, you don't, right? Like if you haven't been tested, you don't know. And even but if you the have. Thing, yeah, the only thing, that, and this is completely not political, is just being from the Netherlands, knowing that nobody wears masks, like really nobody anywhere, mm-hmm. only in the train, I think. But you could go to a school or to... A supermarket or walk around and just nobody wears masks and you see the graph of infections and the number of people hospitalized and it's just straight to zero so i i don't understand why mm, tula- it's thing. probably like tulips or something yeah or <laughs> weed na- or something natural yeah. t- <laughs> tulips. that'd be funny if it turns out that the weed is the cure right or like something like um some it relaxes the lungs it's the, the potato dish that we eat <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's beef tartare. It kills the virus. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> insulting people all the time. It's, it's our straightforward, yeah, our straightforward <laughs> direct communication style scares the virus. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, that might be a little segue into the movie today. I like that you're trying to make segues now. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Let's get, let's but get. in a way, like this uh, directness of communication and this this movie was all about avoiding communication yeah so this week um we're looking at the square which uh came out in 2017 not that long ago um but not would you say it's the cringiest thing you've seen well i think what i described to you is like it's a european version of uncut gems or something it's very uncomfortable well i I do want to rephrase that a little bit because it was before (laughs) uncut gems so yeah by by several years yeah yeah so you could say uncut gems is the american version of the square it uses some of the same directing techniques to create tension like it'll keep um, the shot locked on the face of someone, even when they're and in dark. constant bad decisions. Yeah, and bad decisions, yeah. So as I was watching the movie, I thought this is a tough one to explore because the plot is so dense, but at the same time, the plot is unimportant. Like, we, we could we could spend an hour saying, like, he goes into the car, yeah, he totally. puts stuff in the mailboxes. And, I, re- and I, read a, I read a pretty stupidly written review on RogerEbert.com that was like, if this pl- if it had a plot, it's middling or things like, and it and like and it, as if but, like but a it, movie it, has to. But I think that that's part of the the film. The director's like, if you've seen other movies by him or heard him say anything, I don't know if you saw Force Majeure. I, I haven't seen it yet, but um, no. it's I think similar. But I, I just wanted to say to our listeners, like this is actually the movie that you really should have seen when we talk about it because it's. Uh, oh yeah, I th- I think. Uh, I don't even want to try setting up. Like, let's say you want to watch, you want to review Terminator, then you can be like, okay, uh, AI taking over and then Sky, humans yeah. fighting back. Yeah. You know, it's pretty Time simple. Time travel. Yeah, but this one is like, mm, so I think 
if you haven't seen it, uh, and you wanted to say it was hard to watch in Canada or hard to find on the streaming? It's not, yeah, it wasn't available by any streaming service. So the only way for me, and even, I can't even rent it on Amazon. So the only way to watch it is, I think, yeah, in Canada. I take that for granted here that, that any movie I want to see is for rent for three or four dollars. Yeah, in Canada, generally, that's why I think they allow piracy. <laughs> They're just like, you know what? We can't figure out this capitalism thing. So. <laughs> You yeah, know, you could just break the law. Well, but that's the smaller <laughs> country argument that it, it, it's like figuring out the licensing for a market that's only 10 million people is well, maybe more expensive. It's almost 40 million people, but still. Anyway, it's it, you yeah. can get it on iTunes. You can you can rent it there for for like 2.99 or something. You could or you couldn't. You can, yeah. So that's the one place that's available is on so, iTunes. So that was your take on it being tough. Yeah, because I don't have iTunes on my TV. Like oh. my TV is an Amazon TV or whatever. Anyway, like. Well, I'm locked it's into a this. tough life, bro. I know, I know. Yeah. This was a week of Apple, though, so... Yeah. But uh, you managed to see... Did you end up pirating it or watching it on iTunes? Um, I ended up, yeah, uh, well... I, I'm just... I'm, I'm interested in the decision tree, where you're like, <laughs> I, I want the maximum visual impact, so I need it on the big screen. Okay, or? so what happened is I tried to watch it last night with Kristen. I tried to pay for it, and I, and I couldn't get it to work, like... It was. It kept shooting me over to the. American Had you guys store. already sat down and made tea and popcorn? Yeah, like right? she's yeah. on the couch or whatever. And then, yeah. then I then I did pirate it, but then it didn't have subtitles, and I was like, ah, I'm gonna go back and try and buy it again. And that yeah, didn't work. Most of the dialogue is in Swedish. And then I had to download a pirated Yiffy subtitle check <laughs> then connected to VLC. That's my main argument against piracy, that it's often a buggy experience. Well, the thing is, yeah, that's been the argument. It's not even the argument. The, most people just want convenience. I, if I could just click the button and watch it, I would have done that. But I was like being thrown around different stores and nothing would work in Canada. And then this morning, I actually figured it out before this podcast that if I log on on my computer into iTunes, I can then like download it to my computer and then I guess I could transfer it <laughs> over to my anyway Can you airplay it to your TV I don't know like I didn't get that far so that's the frustrating yeah. thing right like uh, because I'm in the Amazon ecosystem and they haven't they haven't licensed it and none of my yeah. none of my movie subscriptions Criterion um, like Crave which is HBO here um, you know Netflix all I have also this other like thing on prime video of like classic movies like nothing works and then it is really yeah. funny that i i rented the square on amazon and that just like a few miles further in canada they're like nope yeah yeah same thing with force yeah. majeure uh which i wanted to watch like his other film just so i was like a little bit better first and and anyway that that also is not available outside of itunes yeah so um just to summarize the movie for people who have seen it but it, it's been a while. Uh, it's a story about a curator of a contemporary art museum in Stockholm, and uh, he gets in trouble. That's basically the story. Well, he, yeah, like, so it, it's sort of, the, I don't think it's so much the plot as, like, it, the, the plot or the, th the way the movie kind of starts is that his phone and wallet get stolen, and he's able to yeah, trace but, his phone back to the... But, but the way it gets stolen is... Uh, because he helps he someone. He thinks he's a hero. Yeah, yeah. And but, people take advantage of that. That was an elaborate setup by the thieves. Um, and yeah. so he takes pride and excitement in having done the right thing in the public context. And anyway... A woman, a woman races through a crowd and says, someone's trying to kill me. And then him and another man protect her. And then the guy who was chasing her is yelling at them and saying, this is a misunderstanding. 
Then the, everybody leaves, everything's fine, and then he finds out his wallet and his phone were stolen, and he also thought his cufflinks were stolen, but he finds those later. Yeah, yeah. So there's a... The, I mean, the whole thread in this movie is the, the, the group and the trying to be the alpha male and monkeys and instinct and uh, the power and... Yeah, I think the. I mean, in interviews, I you know, I think you would you would agree with this. Like that, what you just described, like um, the public square, and the movie's called the square in reference to a contemporary art object in the the square in front of the museum where he's the curator. But the movie's really about this kind of concept of the bystander effect, which is like a sociological yeah. principle, um, and similar to like the Milgram experiments or anything, which is. You know, when, wh- who has the authority to step in? When does a person step in when someone needs help? You know, and throughout the movie, there's like homeless people asking for help. And this is this curator kind of pretends to be um, altruistic and ethical. Yeah. And, and the square, this installation in front of the museum is all about public trust and, you know, you know, a place where there's a social contract where if, if anyone's inside the square and they you have to help them. Yeah. yeah, one of the one of the things I find interesting is that you're constantly wondering whether he's sincere, uh, whether he really believes in the project, because he's also kind of like a a salesman or a politician where he will say whatever the person who asks him wants to. He just the the movie starts with him being interviewed and press conferences and opening an exhibition. And he just says what the audience wants to hear to save his own ass. That that's very clear. Well, I think the sincerity comment's interesting because, like, he. They, but there's a what I want to say. There's a moment when he gives a tour yeah, to his children of the exhibition, oh, okay. and then, then he's you see the real sincere. him. Yeah, but I think yeah. one of the ways they play with is he sincere? Is like he gives two different presentations to the public, and in both cases, it. yeah, in both cases yeah. he starts out reading and he's like no 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 this isn't authentic he takes his glasses off as if is it okay if i start over i want to be real with you yeah (laughs) which is kind of funny as a you know performance technique or tactic but it obviously gets you to this place where you're like this guy's really full of shit you know like he says he's about this but it's just marketing but it's and that's kind of the premise of the film as well which is like they're trying to promote this new art object and this you know the museum has just switched over from being a museum of history historical art to or or like fine art to contemporary art and so there's also this like tension in terms of them them being like bold and new that's that's why i wanted to bring this up on the podcast because obviously we have an art audience and then um the 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 demands of the museum now are contradictory so there, there are many different roles of the museum and one is like to question things and one is to educate that that's already at odds mm-hmm. uh, one of the things he talks about is the museum needs patronage but at the same time the museum is for everyone so how do you serve the elite and the large audience at the same time so and one of the roles is that the museum is all about conserving and keeping things for the long term and at the same time, you want the energy of the next generation. And those things are at odds, too. And I think that, that this, the whole cringe idea of the movie, I think he chose the art world because the art world is so hypocritical in the sense that it uh, has all these conflicting tasks. And if you are really open about it, you'd be like, yeah, the money's coming from rich old people, and we're supposed to pretend that we're doing it for the people. But they're really doing it to increase the value of their collections or whatever. No, that's a great summary. You know, yeah. like it's a, ta- it's a giant like tax loophole, you know, the way it's set up. Yeah. 
but then at the same time we have to smile and say that, that this is we're really a museum for people uh, in struggle and uh, we want to bring culture to more people that don't have access to this and that weren't educated so we're going to educate them and then they'll be better people and the world will be better yeah it's like a tennis club or a yacht club you know it's like really but but, but, imagine, but a traditional country club yeah, is is not closed. pretending to be for everyone no i know it's like it's yeah. a but i think that's what the movie's also about right which is like you pre, you know the pretend the pretension or pretending to have ethics and then what do you do when you actually have to but it's very act? funny because Traditionally, the art world is pretentious in the sense that it's elitist. So that the traditional role of the art world is to say, okay, this looks like a squiggle to the everyday person, mm -hmm. but actually it's a masterpiece, mm -hmm. and it is so because we say so. Yeah, and they're in Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss. Is that, that's her name, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. From Mad Men and Handmaid's Tale. She plays, um, she plays this reporter uh, in the movie and she, ha she has like, does an interview with him. That's only two questions with uh, class bang who plays Christian, the curator. At yeah. The end of it. And it's the classic avoiding the question mumble. <laughs> but the two speech. questions are like, the first is just like, why did, why, you know, why does this museum need to exist? But then the second one is like, I read something on your website and it's, it's like, <laughs> it's about sight and non-sight and Smithson's ideas of, you know, the art site versus the non-site and she asks him you know what does this mean and it's one of those statements we've all read or been i've probably been on a couple panels that were like that and um and he then gives like this bullshit answer which is like well see your handbag if i put your handbag in a museum is it art he asks um <laughs> and she's like yeah that's okay and you can you can clearly see that that's also not what the statement was about if you're at all savvy <laughs> about art well, too. so like what what i when i see that the art world is changing right now and rightfully so i think it's it's really behind the rest of cultural production that uh, most cultural production is a lot more diverse than uh, so museums so that's really interesting cuz like you know um we're, we obviously, you and I both think about this a lot, and our our career started by challenging some of the assumptions of the art world. Um, and e but even this week, like I had several studio visits where, um, you know, I, I was talking to people about new modes of making, right? Like, and whether it was like, um, you know, like art in a in in an application, like in an app on the App Store, or art as like jewelry and but you know one of the things that's been interesting about this like about covid is it's like forced people to be like well the white box like actually is yeah, no longer yeah, yeah, accessible it's, it's like we can't do it that way anymore so but but the the, the counter argument i would say that of course uh when i was so so one of the things in the art world that's very clear in this movie is the the difference between the the age of the makers and the audience and so the audience tends to skew much older not not just collectors like i know this from curators around the world there's like yeah we're worried our average visitor is over 50 years old mm -hmm. it's and that's it's, a word yeah. it's really funny it's in the after party scene when they're all dancing to rave music and it's yeah like, <laughs> it's like yeah so 50. that that's another cringe thing about the art world is like these vampire old people that want to suck energy from the young artists hey, and the young audience. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting pretty old. And then as you get older as an artist, you're kind of fine with it. It's like, ah, these old people are not bad. But, <laughs> but, but when I was young, I was like, why, if you're in a band, you play to people your own age? Yeah. 
And if you're an artist, you have to make an exhibition for old people. Why is that? It's weird. So I thought, oh, if I put things on the internet, uh, anyone can see it. Because I, I think it's personally, I think it's because youth is a form of you know power that they don't have access to, and so that's their way of getting access to it. But yeah, but why is that different from music? Because I mean, it, it, let, let's say that you start a new kind of music, like Billie Eilish, or like you know, like a next generation thing. You're not going to see a mostly 60-year-old crowd at the concert. It's just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but wh- I think... Why, it, why is that okay in music that when you're old, you're like, I'm okay still listening to Bob Dylan and my children listen to Billie Eilish and it's fine. Mm, it's interesting. Um, I, I mean, one thing with music is people tend to... I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm that way. I, I, like, you know, one of the reasons I always hypothesized about music was that you stop having access to networks where you're introduced to new music, you know, which would normally be through going to shows. I think it's time. I think old people don't have time to discover because the the thing is I do have time. So I tend to, Yeah, but I mean, I'm listening to new music like all the time. No, but you have a job that requires a lot of conversation. So you can't play music most of the day. And I am always listening to music as I'm drawing or doing other things. So, but I do listen. I have to a lot music. of time to discover. Like Spotify music. just like tells me what to listen to. <laughs> I mean, like. okay, yeah, I, I do think it changed. But um, back to the sort of art world thing of yeah, it, it's really it seems the art world is really people are always looking for the new thing and uh, maybe also because it's more affordable when you collect it. Yeah, I mean, always looking for the new thing, but buying the thing that's you know. Well, also because new. art is is a is a, a value store, and then if you can buy something young that will. Uh, Return, have a hundred thousand x return and uh, you want to find that with young people you're not going to find that if you buy old masters yeah again this movie you know kind of doesn't really talk about acquisition in fact most of the works in the movie are not you couldn't acquire even if you wanted they're to. like video installations or performance or, or public yeah. sculpture or public installation and i think one of the more um, like notable performances that they spend a lot of time on in the film and is in all the promotional material is this sequence or this scene where this guy Oleg, a performer, a performance artist, it like um, is a chimpanzee, and it's yeah. like a black tie dinner with all the sort of no- the trustees and everyone, you know, that everyone important in the city is at this dinner, and then you know they're like, okay, you know what? Uh, there's an announcement that 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 comes over the loudspeaker. You know, you're in the jungle, and there's a predator, and you know, you do you choose to blend in or you know show fear? Yeah, and if you yeah. show fear, you will be singled out, and you'll you know, be hunted. You'll be hunted, um, and so the, your best chance and, is and, to and, just. But the best chance is to blend in and hope that he hits somebody else. Yeah, and you'll be safe. Yeah. <laughs> and then out comes this this guy, played by Terry Oleg, played by Terry Notary, which I later found out. He plays like he a lot played, of the apes in Planet of the Apes. He, he's played in Lord of the Rings. He's one of those uh, motion, motion capture. capture. Yeah, like um, yeah. that other guy. What's his name? Um, the yeah, the one who plays Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, regardless, uh, his this guy Terry Notary apparently is like also super famous. I've for seen that. I've seen videos of him explaining how how you walk as an ape and that you have to turn off your rationality and be in tune with your body and breathing and is he's kind of a when you see him talking about it, he's kind of a hippie yoga, very chill guy, but then he's he's able to conjure up this very aggressive primal energy. So he comes into the room 
and like jumps on the tables and like kind of harasses another artist. He, and uh, he's very muscular, but not in a sense that he looks polished. So it's a very raw, muscular person. And yeah. he has these arm extensions so that his arms are as long as a gorilla's. By the way, I immediately read him as Mike Smith, um, who is a contemporary performance artist that was kind of more notable in the 1980s, but did a lot of comedy work and performance. And There's also a, a Russian artist that would perform as a dog. Do you know that one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mike, Mike Smith would perform as a baby, and he would go around like in public harassing people as like this like unruly baby, <laughs> like in diapers. And, you know. yeah. <laughs> but it's like our greatest fear is the irrational animal being, yeah. um, you know, picking on us. It, it reminds <laughs> me, this is a bit of a uh, jump off, but there's a... One of my favorite sketches from Jackass is they dress someone up as a homeless person and they take a diaper and put chocolate pudding in the diaper and put it in the trash. Mm-hmm. And so the homeless person is one of the Jackass guys and he goes around to people like, can you spare me a dollar? I'm so hungry. Can you spare me? And nobody gives him a dollar. And then finally he rumbles in the trash and finds the diaper and starts eating the chocolate pudding. It looks like poop. And people are like, what, what are you doing? He's like, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. And... It, it relates a lot to this movie. If like you see someone suffering, but you're also busy and yeah. At the end of the day, the movie is pretty has a simple premise, which is like someone is suffering. They're asking for help. Do you help? What does it take for you to help them? Right, and then they make a marketing uh, piece about this too, and it relates to the square where they hire like some social media like gurus. That that to me was the scene that they are the most believable actors in the movie. Like they just, <laughs> you you know those guys. You've worked with them. I have personally, yeah. I mean, I've probably been that guy at a certain point, you know, early in my career. So so to explain a little bit, the museum has this exhibition, the square is important to them, um, and they have to market it. But the average, like just the photo of the thing is just a a rectangle on a square. So how do you tell the story to bring an audience and make them curious? So they hire a marketing team, and there's an older marketing guy who brings his baby to the meeting. So you constantly hear the baby crying. Yeah, there's either, you're either interrupted and, and by phone a, calls or babies. And he has white hair and a ponytail, and he's really tan. He's like this weird old advertising dude. And then there's two younger guys, and for, for some reason they were so believable to me. Like, <laughs> Don't you think? Like, yeah, they feed off of one like, another. I've definitely... Like, um, yeah. I think the curator was convincing, but you still think he's an actor. I think the guy who played the artist was not convincing. Really felt like an actor. Well, I think these two guys at some point... And Elizabeth Moth is like too much of a movie star, but these guys just really... One of the things that's kind of cool about their performance is that they seem... To, to give off this feeling of being disrespected when people aren't listening to their great idea. <laughs> and yet the ideal st- the ideal still goes ahead the idea goes ahead anyway, even though it's a terrible but one idea. of the yeah one of the lines that they say that is so great to me is like the message of this exhibition is just too bland. We're just not going to get people here. Like saying that we want to be a good oh, no, space like, for good people. Yeah, they're like, what? peace on earth. Everyone agrees with that. That's not interesting. Yeah. We need more, we, need we more need, conflict. <laughs> we need conflict. What's the conflict in saying we want the world to be good? So the whole premise of the exhibition, which they, the museum had thought about for a long time, the artists had thought about for a long time, they just in one swoop went like, that's boring. <laughs> <laughs> but they also say we don't want to change the work. We just want to bring attention to the work. We want to do exactly what you're talking about. And and the way they do it is sensationalist. And, of course, it gets the curator well, into the, trouble. One of the things they say is, like, you're not competing uh, with other museums for attention. You're competing with terrorists and right-wing politicians and sensationalism. You're competing for attention. So 
as people are going through their newspaper or through their Facebook feed, they're confronted with very intense hyper content. And then you to say, oh, we made an exhibition that wants to make the world a better place. It's just not going to cut it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely resonated um, with me having worked in both marketing and in art and art marketing being usually like some of the, you know, really hard. It's so cringe. really hard. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a very clever. It, it, it's funny that Ruben Ostland, I just looked up what's going on with his next project and his next project will be about the fashion world, which a lot more people can relate to than art. I think it's just more part of the public consciousness. But if, but we're, if we're kind of real about it, like as an artist, let me just be like a little bit honest. When I'm yeah. coming up with an art idea, I'm often thinking about it from in marketing terms, if I'm on, if I'm super, super honest, just knowing yeah, what yeah, I know yeah. about marketing. Knowing this what is I know a safe space, art. Jeremy. Yeah, but you'll in, in marketing, you'll do something called a positioning statement, which is like, okay, whatever you're doing, you have to position against something else, right? And but that's that's almost the 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 heart of art making that you look at like what has been done before yeah. and how do I position myself? So if if you were thinking I want to move away from the object and I want to bring my body to the webcam and to social media yeah. because that's where people are. You could see that from a marketing point of view, but you could also see that yeah. the same way video artists in the 70s were like, well, now the moving image is part of recorded history for everybody, and that's what I want to explore. Well, I'll just honestly share an experience from like two days ago that like gets even closer to this film, which is like <laughs> I was talking to, maybe it was yesterday, I, was, <laughs> I don't want to like, the person who's list, is probably listening, but like, it's also like, it, you know, as I was watching the film, I was like, oh my God. But basically, you know, I did a, a piece for a show and then, you know, in, in it, I, it involves like these like tassels um, on my, uh, on like on these fake augmented reality breasts and like, you know, I'm, I'm getting them to spin. And I was talking to this creator was like, and we were talking about really progressive ideas and stuff. And they're like, well, could we take this idea and take it further? <laughs> could we punch it up? And like, could we, could you do a workshop? And I was like, of course I could do a workshop. I love doing that type of thing. I love being, giving people the tools to do their own kind of expression. And then kind of the, the conversation veered into like, and what about like a challenge, you know, like <laughs> it's mm, in the movie. That was in the movie too. In the movie, let's do the ice bucket challenge. Let's do challenge. the ice bucket challenge. And I've also been in other art marketing meetings where people like try and either take my work or something else. They're like, well, what's going to get the public excited? And it's not, a, it's not, a, it's sincerely, they're just trying to get attention in a media landscape that as the movie suggests is really hard to get attention. But that's, for artists. that's one of the things I took from the movie in the, that, I think when you're young as an artist, especially you're like on the internet, you're like, I don't care about money. I just want most, a lot of people to see the work. That was my motto. Mm -hmm. Like the, the money will figure itself out later. Um, and I think as time went on, it's more like reaching lots of people is not that interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, And then you start thinking more about like, how can I make the viewing experience superior even if it doesn't reach a lot of people? So then you think about things like, can I make this in an installation form that you have to be at the space to see it? And, uh, the kind of one-to-one -one relationship. Yeah, and, and, and maybe the last 20 years museums have been fighting for attention, get as many visitors as possible. Mm -hmm. And now, thanks to COVID, that's not even possible anymore to have a museum too packed. I think, like, but, yeah, and like museums like the Tate kind of set this unrealistic precedent for the world of like, yeah, millions but, of people. But, but when here. you think about, and that's maybe a lot of what I'm when I see the movie is the why do people get into art? 
because there's all these roles attached to art, but the real core of it, whether you're an art historian or a curator or a critic, a lot of people go in it for this perceptual sensitivity and exploration of feelings, and they're not going for the reason of spectacle. So it's a more quiet thing, it's a more long-term thing and contemplative. And then there are all these needs outside of like, we need ticket sales, uh, we need to get the donors excited, we need media attention, and those things have nothing to do with why anyone got into the art world in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and but like on the reverse side, you could argue art is the most contemporary form of media because it's so fluid, right, and so responsive. And so, you know, we're, this is a, you know, become a movie podcast, but, you know, obviously we're artists and we've always talked about art. And the reason I, at least I've always been engaged with art is just because it's like, you know, there's kind of almost limitless possibilities and it's yeah. always responding. Yeah, so you're not, to you're not confined content. to being a musician, or, but don't you think that's the same for music now that if you are a musician, you can have a stage show or you can write essays or yeah, so, you can make fashion. Yeah. And I think, so that's where I, I like, that's where I feel things are going right now. So a lot of the conversations I've been having with people and, and you know, that this is my interest, so I'm biased, but is, is toward, well, why should we constrain art making or thinking about art to this very narrow view um, that was invented maybe a hundred years ago, right? Like, wh- and why should we let people with power dictate how art is yeah. shown the, the, and disseminated? The thing I do realize, um, if it, like right now I'm making a book, but it's a very small edition, so it, there will only be twenty copies of the book. It's more like a portfolio of silk screens. Mm-hmm. And the amount of precision that we can get with the type of paper and the type of printing and the way the box is, the color experience is far superior to something that you would mass produce. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think sometimes distribution and experience and intensity can be at odds. Yeah, and I guess that that comes down to like this fundamental debate in the film around um, who has a access to yeah, moral, yeah, moral but, high ground, capital high ground, like yeah. ethical high ground. And so like if you're making something for a few people, you know, who are those few people? Is it Yeah, but but maybe the question before you decide who you're making it for is what you want to make. And if if mm-hmm. if you let's say that you think of someone like James Turrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he makes light installations or that, or like uh, Smithson in the movie, right? Like Yeah. But I want to use James Turrell as an example because Light is something that you can transmit over a network over the internet. So you could make them as websites. Mm. But there's something... Okay, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Just you know, his, his things are so experiential, like your whole body. Yeah, yeah, is, I know, yeah. I know. But he could he could be idealistic and, and say like, you know, I can only make 20 of these around the world. Not that many people can see it. So if I focus all my energy on the internet and create a body of work there yeah. that might reach... A bazillion people, but I would have to compromise the outcome of the work and the viewing experience. So, what I'm saying is, the making of the work before the distribution sometimes dictates negative side effects like elitism and expensive construction, all this stuff. But that's secondary, right? And that's you, you can't start with saying like, "Okay, I'm an artist. I want to reach a lot of people. The work should be available for free, and it should make people happy." And blah blah. It's like, no, no, you're first right. You have you're to right. Make the I was work. I was just sort of critiquing this. Have you seen acute art? It's like they started doing VR with Mar- Marina Bromvik, but now they've moved into AR, and they have like two collaborations. Oh, 
Yeah, they have cause or something. Yeah, and and Olafur Eliasson. Yeah. Eliasson. And I think, like, what's funny about that is, like, why are they working with artists that are not at all digital? <laughs> you know, like, they're just yeah. taking their practice well, and famous. translating it to AR. No, exactly. But it's, like, it's totally a marketing uh, angle. Yeah. And I've, you, you see other, you know, companies, Sedition, and everyone that tries to get into, you know, let's really commodify art in a massive scale way. They always make this huge mistake, which is to ignore the art. <laughs> the art yeah. has anything to do with it. Well, it, yeah. that's the funny thing that is also in this movie. Nobody knows what good art is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, when you think about it, like, if nobody knows, then it's just a choice. And I think that's uh, also why the director chose art, because... There's a board of. Uh, I think you're making a really good point, which is yeah. You know, but there's there's a yeah. there's an elite board of trustees that have to donate to the museum, and there's no definite answer. Like, let's say you want to invest in an oil company, then you look at a bunch of spreadsheets and you say, okay, that company has the best returns. I'll invest in that. Mm-hmm. And art is sometimes like that, especially with painting. You say, what has the best returns? But the reason one artist has better returns over another is very ambiguous and. With with something like any other commodity, like crude oil, or I'm just thinking like pebbles or whatever, it's like oh that place has the best volume to production ratio or whatever. Mm-hmm. I d- and I, with art, it's just like why is this painting more important right now than that one? Let me tell you, my pebbles portfolio is doing pretty well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. But the thing I think that was the, the good point that uh, that I wanted to encapsulate that what you're hinting at is that the film um, really does not cast a hero or villain it casts kind of this ambiguous mm, that's true conflict in a single character so like the curator is really throughout the movie just in personal tumult over doing the right thing and or being the right like the impression of the right thing and so there's no antagonist or protagonist which i know is something that yeah, you're always critical yeah. of in american film but in yeah. this movie the a there's no plot but b the the plot internal plot of the character is that con- is in a cyclical kind of yeah? So thrash. there's not a clear happy or sad ending. Yeah, exactly. And in the and in fact, in the end, you have to live with the fact that there's no resolution. So the movie revolves around you know this phone that we mentioned being stolen, but then one of you know he puts all these notes in. He goes to the apartment where he tracked the phone to being stolen so to, and he puts like moment. he puts letters in all the mailboxes threatening uh, to like you know, ruin people's lives if they don't return his phone wall. And magically, someone... Which he was, he was being egged on by his younger assistant. So that was also an example of the younger generation having energy that's maybe misdirected. Yeah, and then he, like, there's some really cringeworthy, because like... Because he can obviously afford a new phone, but it becomes a pride issue. Yeah, none of that makes any sense outside of ego, actually. The no. only thing that didn't make sense to me in the movie is why he got his phone back in the first place. Well, so he gets his phone back at the... Someone returns it because they, they responded to the threat at a 7-Eleven. But then a week later, he gets another package at the 7-Eleven where he had written in the note, like, go return my stuff. And it's from... Turns out to be from a little boy. And the boy's like... You ruined my life. My parents think I stole your phone and wallet and they won't let me play ball anymore. <laughs> they grounded me. And he's like, I'm yeah. going to cause chaos in your life. Chaos in your life. And he does kind of cause chaos in this guy's life by just simply showing up. And at one point, even like the, you know, Christian shoves him down the stairs because he's the boys come to his home. Anyway, eventually he realizes what an asshole he is. And he's like, I got to go like, 
apologize. All all the little boy was asking the whole time was like, please come and apologize to me and my mother and father so that <laughs> they don't so they don't think I'm a bad person. And so then he goes, he's like, I you know what, I gotta do the right thing. I'm gonna go to this building. I'm gonna apologize. And he start he knocks on the first door and he talks to this guy and the guy's like, ah, uh, yeah, so um that kid don't doesn't live here anymore. And so you he just moved. <laughs> you know, so he yeah, he's just moved. And so you're left and that's kind of where the movie leaves that's the end of the movie that's basically the ending, you're yeah. kind of like you're left hanging with like no resolution you know this guy has to live with you know his no resolution that he has done the wrong yeah. thing and i think for this moment which we haven't gotten to yet but it's kind of maybe work where we've worked up to it which is like we're in this moment right now where culturally speaking whether it's covid or black lives matter or any number of social injustices that seem to have like really enraptured us all and 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 deservedly so you know where do you stand on acting versus like watching and the movie you know and and there's even a danger when you act out that you'll be punished for not acting out in the right way <clears throat> well or yeah and like even this the the irony of the movie and it, we should have do said you hide in the herd the yeah. movie is a satire but it, a satire really relies on irony like one of the great ironies of the film is that the marketing that is so horrible and that he quit you know he has to resign his post for having allowed well, there's a the conflict being, of his of his stone uh, phone stolen and he's overwhelmed and he gets into the meeting with the marketeers and he doesn't even look at it and he's like sure go yeah it's fine yeah yeah exactly this one more so they, they published this youtube viral clip like all they wanted to do is go viral and it's so horrific they're blowing up a small child to just to make a statement and then he has to a small resign homeless child, was, yeah which is like yeah. so against the whole concept but in the end he resigns <laughs> but the greatest irony of course is that the media is like that comes to this it becomes a media sensation gets all this attention and as the it press does conference fulfill its promise. yeah as yeah. the press conference is going on they're like wait tell us more about this artist and where can we find out more about this work and suddenly the work is <laughs> well one of the things <laughs> I, i found funny is he, he does the press conference and, and he apologizes like Uh, there was a miscommunication in the organization and the PR agency takes responsibility, but still he resigns. Um, and then someone, the first journalist stands up and said, how distasteful for you to take light of people in need and the voiceless and it's terrible and everybody claps. <laughs> but then the next journalist says, oh, so I guess the square wasn't about open expression. So there are certain things that can't be said free, in the square. Free speech so I guess you're, risk, yeah. I guess you're for censorship. Yeah. Because when things get a little dangerous, you get nervous. Yeah. And so... It, and he's I previously think, said that he stands for free speech earlier in the movie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I do think part of why I had a difficulty with this podcast, and I think a lot of people, is that even with the best of intentions, you can say things that are taken out of context or misinterpreted. Well, and, uh, I, I, yeah, I think the bottom line, though, is just that this is, you know, that in, the conflict itself is actually like, you know, when there's a difficult decision, sometimes it's not yes or no. Like, well, he's trying to please everyone. Huh? Well, I don't know. Like, like there's no resolution. The idea of no resolution, I think, is the most interesting thing about the film, that, there, yeah. that it's not clear. It's clear that he's a bad person, but it's also clear that he wants to do the right thing. But then it's clear that he can't do the right thing. And it's clear that his privilege is, like, continuously yeah. getting yeah. in the way of that. And then, you know, you ask yourself, like, is complacency the right thing or is acting the right thing? And the movie, that's what the whole standby. And that's you know, really made, the bystander made very effect. concrete in the, in the performance sequence with the ape actor. Exactly. Like, so th let's yeah. get back to that scene because it's crazy. <laughs> like, it's so intense. <laughs> eventually, the ape actor. Did you did you go into the movie knowing that scene? 
No, no, I didn't watch it. Okay. Yeah. And so eventually, the, the you know, yeah, the ape actor who's a performance artist, she's just called the ape actor, but he picks on a, a, a like a woman in the audience and, you know, it gets to the point where it looks like he's going to rape this woman, which is horrific. And then that's the line. And so like, it's that's like, line, yeah. you know, where is the line ends up being? Then the rest of the crowd jumps him and yeah. takes over. But I think yeah. the resolution on the film, if you're looking for like, you know, what is the, you know, the, you can, the you know, you want that, like, um, what is the meaning or um, the moral of the story comes in his a scene with his daughters who are both in, like, this cheerleading squad. And the older daughter, he observes, like, this coaching session. Um, you know, they've just lost a major kind of championship and the coach is talking to them. And, the, you know, the girl, he's like, you can't, he's talking to the girls and he's saying, like, you can't, like, you know, if you're feeling guilty or bad that we didn't do well, that's not productive energy. You have to take that energy and you have to put it toward, you know, helping your team succeed the next time. And I thought that was like, I don't know, for me, it personally resonated just because right now, like in my corporate life, a little bit more transparency here. There's a lot of like, I'm sure this is anyone who's listening that's in an office with people. I'm sure you've, there's a group of people inside your office that have gotten together and said like, Hey, we won't, we stand for something here. Like what's going on? Like, why aren't we doing more to combat racism? Like da, 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 right. Important issues. And you know, there, there's this, but there's this conflict internally about what is, what is the right action versus what is like inaction and what is is silence violence. And I, I know this is uncomfortable, but like, it's really, really interesting to see those things play out um, internally. I'm obviously very supportive of action and I've taken action for years, but those who have never acted are afraid of taking the first action at being the wrong one. Yeah. And so you see all this anxiety built in. There's there's also the the idea that you have to give up your own power if you want to be fair. And that's very hard to do. Yeah, you can't be the white savior. So there's like it's it's really complex stuff, and but it's being cast as really simple, you know. And so, but then complexity is always used as this like everyone in power is always like ah, oh, it's a complicated topic. We can't really go there. We you know it has to come from the grassroots or something like that. And that's a way of deferring responsibility and accountability. And then people always say like it's the work. We've got to do the work. And you're like, what what is the work? <laughs> It's like yeah. the work to understand. Well, it's like, well, what have you done to understand? Like, well, I read this book and da da da. But of course, it's like a lifelong project, and so yeah. And and the funny contradiction is that the art world is really set up, uh, in theory, is uh, for people to have fun and explore whatever they want without uh, responsibility. Well, it's kind of the argument you've often made, and then I've made the counter argument. Which I mean, is it, like, it, I think, it, yeah, but but we don't expect musicians that while they're practicing guitar to think about problem solving and, and solve issues of uh, injustice. Like, like that might be added later, but at its very core, like when you teach a child to start playing piano, mm -hmm. you're really focused on the sequence of music and that state of mind. Like, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I think there's a part of the, the human nature of, of exploration. The same way if you're playing with a ball and you're, learning to use your hands and feet and coordination in the same way you might learn to dance or you might learn to cook. At that moment, you're focused. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. there, there's a moment of, of not flow. being responsible and being immersed in flow, into yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. And I think, end of the day, uh, 
you can you can add responsibilities later, but that's not why the the, the primal interest. Well, I think like the, you know I saw something with um, the director's name's Ruben Estland. We didn't mention that earlier, but I saw an interview with him, and he was like, "I actually don't take a moral position on this. I'm more interested in." And, I, and his position was it also looks like, like an anthropological study. Yeah, I think we should be, you know, as human beings, we could be more curious and less judgmental, you know, which I thought was like, for me, as a, from my design background, that's a very interesting statement, which is to say, bring more voices to the table because you want to, you're actually curious to hear what they have yeah, to say. Yeah, you're yeah. curious about different perspectives, right? Like, yeah. And I think that, that again, is something when, when you see a great art exhibition, you know it's great because of that, usually, right? You're like, oh, it's not just telling me what it is, right? It's asking me to investigate, or it's it's really trying to figure out in the nuance. And I know you love nuance, and so do I. I think everyone does, but it takes, there's a burden in that. Yeah, which is and the, the funny contradiction is the media landscape is so unnuanced, and, and so if the... If, yeah, especially in America if, with Republican versus Democrat, right? Like, yeah. it's always a so versus... If, if the museum is not a safe space politically, let's say, but a safe space aesthetically or a safe space away from responsibility, do you know what I'm trying to get at? Like, you're free here to explore things that seem unimportant. Yeah, but what's been really excited in recent years is that artists have started to call out museums for their contradictions, right? Like, yeah. I think the, the last Whitney Biennial um, and other movements where, the you know, there's been, you know, it's been solidarity between artists saying like no it's wrong that like the board of trustees murders people in palestine i think that that's like that's the kind of thing that you would expect or want to happen yeah 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 but the, what I, what i'm saying is those are all uh see, seeing this movie it's it's very funny it's it's implanted in artists that the the greatest goal or the, the greatest achievement is to have a museum show that's like it i, I think you can have all kinds of strategies and do street art or net art or do public performance. But in the end, everybody wants to have a retrospective where you see your whole timeline in the whole Guggenheim spiral. And like yeah, everybody's working, everyone's working towards that in their head. And I, I don't know, maybe some artists are free from ego, but I, I think like, okay, let's save everything for later because that would be my great exhibition at the end where I could put everything together. Yeah. And, and seeing this... Uh, sort of more removed take on what a museum is i'm like i don't know if that's such a good goal maybe i should focus more on all the stuff around me because it's actually a terrible place no i don't think it's a good goal i mean but yeah maybe so that, it's, an, it's an easy thing for trying, me to say because i don't think it's going to be possible for me at this stage of my career but like but at the same time is it really i don't know is it really a positive aspiration i also don't think the museum that we have today is going to look the way it does um you know, did 20 years ago and 20 years from now. I really don't. I just don't think... What What, what do you think it will look like? Um, well, I think you can look... You you know, it's it's funny because I brought up this, like, street art argument in context the other day and I was, it made me cringe internally and I realized, like, if we start to say, like, street art is lesser or, you know, or performance is this or that, we're starting to create this artificial hierarchy around where art belongs... Well, it's that's has always been. Yeah, but like music, you know, once belonged on a stage, then it ended up on a CD, you know, or a record or whatever, and in people's homes. And so, I think the idea that there is a right place for things it, that is that is a well, evidence to me of a power structure. Yeah, but but the, uh, nothing's free of a power structure. So even if if you're a street artist and you're free to go wherever you want, there's a power structure within the graffiti community and mm -hmm. you're a toy and you're a king and there's a hierarchy of like who's the most badass yeah 
Um, so I, I don't think you're free from comparing people and uh, judging, and that, that, that's only up to yeah, you. Yeah, I guess to you're right. Free my, my main thing has always been like, don't tell me I can't own a home, don't tell me I can't have a family, right? Like, but a lot there's you a mean lot as an artist, yeah. Like there's a lot of myth. I've talked about it a lot of times. There's a lot built into the whole thing. You're all, the aspirational goal of you know getting that museum show yeah. is like, it's almost like you know the, the how the record industry really is. is, is like, what's the best uh, place for the work? as a viewing experience and then it gets tricky i'll tell you what the best experience is for the work as a viewing experience as far as you know the museum is concerned or the gallery is that you make 10 cents on the dollar and feel really grateful for it <laughs> and and like you know if you're lucky someday they'll you'll give you a retrospective because you played by the rules you know so i think like no 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 i'm, I'm speaking more like uh if you just think of a a work that you love, like you love John Cage's uh, silent piece. Yeah, like four minutes and, and three that, seconds. That is probably, um, is that the best, would that be the best, exp it's, it's, music is specifically interesting because it can be no, uh, but it's performed. A, that's in, a so good example. Instances. The Flexus yeah, artist but, but really like, said like, art belongs in the head, it doesn't belong on the yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, the launch of that piece in a concert hall with weight and not like at a bar, let's say, mm -hmm. like doing that at a, in a grand opera room instead of doing it um, in, a, in a community center, both can exist, but there's something very powerful about doing four-minute silence in, an, in a stadium with 40,000 people as opposed to doing it in your mom's bedroom. I suppose that's like the argument of the society of the spectacle, like we want... Yeah. We want these shared experiences to yeah, be but it, momentous. Yeah, I, but I, I notice I notice this with my own work that I make websites and they they've become slower and slower. So the kind of the earlier pieces were interactive, so it almost seemed like the best place is to view them at home. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it, you you have the mouse in your hand and whatever. But then the slower pieces, I started showing them in public space, and that creates a lot of excitement, even for people that can't be there. But they see the photo of, oh, the website that I know also exists on Times Square, and that makes the website more valuable or interesting. Yeah. If that had never happened, it was just a website. But because it was also on a public screen in Korea and in a public screen in yeah. Times Square... Even if I had photoshopped it, but well, what we call that in marketing is third is like third party assurances. So the, yeah, the, we yeah. use testimonials and, maybe, and yeah, big yeah, brands. Yeah. Like these are trust markers. Can well, I trust that this is good? You could see it through that lens, or you could see like, you know, uh, if if a band like the Rolling Stones then plays this song in front of two hundred thousand people in Rio and they all sing along, mm -hmm. that's a majestic. Uh, transcendent experience as opposed to they had it had never left their garage yeah i mean i guess yeah at the end of the day we're, we, this is a bit of a recursive argument because it's like is a tree falls in the forest does it, <laughs> does it no no it's, it's maybe an argument about success and like uh, um the is is the museum a benchmark of success for an artist because that's uh the movie talks a lot about the museum as a place of authority and so it's not a benchmark of su success if anybody can have an exhibition. Yeah, also, like, I think the thing we should be honest with, like you and I, is that if, if maybe some of our listeners haven't been behind the scenes at museums, and there are some great people at museums, but it also most museums are mismanaged. And, like, 
like it's a bit of a shit show behind the scenes <laughs> so like i'm not saying yeah but also big companies you think like oh they must be run so precisely well, exactly exactly so yeah. let me tell you also like you know friends who work at shopify in canada that's the most highly valued company in the country run by a lot of my friends who all say it's a complete shit show behind the scenes. <laughs> somehow it works so somehow it does it does work it's not it's not simple i will say like you know, you, you see all, all the scandals you see are caused by there's some stuff that's really backward and behind the times at museums. And if you talk to five museum workers, you'll be like, well, there's no HR in a museum. Like it just like or if there is, there's no it's money one, they're for undervalued. It. And yeah, there's no money for it. Yeah. So management, I didn't, no one receives any management training or if they did go to school, you know, for that, for, for those types of studies, it's not like they're getting the same like Harvard level education on the management aspects of it. And so No, and then everyone even if you would hire that person, they're like, No, but we're an arts organization, so your business strategies don't apply here and blah blah blah. Yeah, and it co- ends up causing a lot of pain to people inside. Like I've just seen so many scandals <laughs> over the years and you're just like, why can't they get their shit together and let the artists do the art and then like you know, why don't they manage these places as well? But then I suppose yeah. that's what ends up with this you know the cringeworthy moment in this where they're not even yeah. they're not even competent in marketing, so they outsource it to the. But my who doesn't my get argument of like the importance of the museum is the viewing. I'm just a little bit devil's advocate because I also think there's something great about discovering things that many people haven't discovered, and you found it in a weird URL, and only two other people saw it, and that's way more exciting than walking into the turbine hall on the Tate, where every tourist just takes a selfie and whatever. So, uh, I do I do think. The museum is just a, a setting for a power structure in this movie. And well, no doubt. Also, they facilitate some of the world's like greatest commissions in terms of scale. Like, so I don't want to yeah, diminish but, but you, that. But when role. you see the exhibitions in the in the museum, they're just like the most cliche museum exhibitions. They're like a close up of a guy in a loop, and then a bunch of chairs that fall down and go back up. And oh, in the movie, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The movie. Had, it's yeah. just it just really when I saw it, I was like. I never want to show in a museum. It's a terrible place. Well, neon on a neon on a wall, which is like they reuse that cliche in the film. Is like yeah. What does it say? You 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 are you are you are are nothing or you are nothing. But like you know these kind of like truisms. um, To use a Jenny Holzer kind of reference, like it's yeah. These are just things that no where everyone nods their head and is like, "Yep, that's art." (laughs) Well, one one of the things he he mentions in the beginning. talk a little bit about relational aesthetics yeah they do yeah and uh, one of the ironic things to me about relational aesthetics that it, it's the exploration of uh, human relationships as an art material but the funny thing is is that it starts humble but it becomes the most privileged thing because it's something you can only make if you have access to the right people uh, as opposed to someone who just loves drawing and buys a sketchbook and a pencil and that's all the power you need is like you just need five dollars to buy a sketchbook mm-hmm. uh, but if you want to make relational aesthetics you have to invest like years and years into ass kissing and getting the right people in your project and i mean uh, theoretically you could you know walk out of your house today and create a relational work um, yeah yeah yeah. but the, the, it, the work is not seen unless you do it with the right people that's that's true yeah like if you so <laughs> so you can make a drawing and the drawing exists even if it doesn't end up in a museum just for but, our listeners relational aesthetics refers to artwork that explores the basically the relationship between people but the what i'm trying to say is that the the direction that relational aesthetics went into yeah. is actually really expensive operatic 
performance installations that are so exclusive and uh, elitist in, in terms of who can make it. Mm -hmm. It's it's the opposite of humble. And I, I feel like in theory, relational aesthetics is like, oh yeah, this is, we're getting rid of all the materials and the commodity part of the art. But then they're like, oh, let's create a, sa a performance, the scale of Katy Perry. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a zillion dollar budget and whatever. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely like quieter works um in yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I just uh, maybe it's because i'm in new york but you see like an installation by philippe pereno in the armory yeah. hall and it's like oh this only cost half a trillion to make. <laughs> well that's why i do think the hap like the fluxus period which i always refer to but that group and and the happenings that resulted from it many of which were not documented as art but were simply um you know fell under the kind of specter of a, mo a cultural movement like free love as an example um that everyone could have it with them like you could carry it in your mind as an idea that idea of an of an ideology being an artwork is still yeah. very powerful um for me anyway thinking about that and that time was really one of great conflict right of great civil rights movements and of people really kind of putting aside their differences and saying hey let's move in the right direction which so that's the you know the the problem with the, my my problem with this movie probably at the end of the day is that it's super cynical and that it basically says there's no resolution like a movement's not possible because we're there's no the, hope. yeah there's no hope the, the internal conflict yeah. as long as white well, people are in power I, I don't think um, I think this movie is more about the contradictions of that section of the art world I don't think it's saying all the art world is like that it's just saying the classic museum with wealthy donors and pretending to be progressive but actually in its structure it's not at all yeah it erases it erases the power and privilege of that group which i think is yeah. very successful at that but but like it's yeah, very yeah. much like it's all white men and there's a real critique of white male ego in this movie you cannot deny that yeah. all the artists yeah, are yeah, white yeah. men like they behave yeah. like alpha the condom apes. scene yeah the, there's <laughs> this great condom scene yeah that <laughs> uh, we haven't even got into with Elizabeth Moss. Where we like, don't have to. It's, those who know will know. Well, I think that she ends up probably being the true, like, kind of in the background hero of the film because she challenges um, Christian, the curator, well, on a yeah. number of occasions, and he has to fall back and say, actually, you're well, right. Well, I, I can s explain a little bit. So the, there's a party of the museum, and everybody gets drunk, and Christian, the curator, is playing... Uh, uh, harpsichord to impress this girl but she's not interested she, she was sitting on his lap and she leaves then there's another girl next to him so he's like oh do you know this song and she doesn't care she's looking at her phone so the girls are not interested then he goes to the bathroom and elizabeth moss's character is there and they're kind of talking to each other but they're not that excited about seeing each other but they just end up in bed because both of them couldn't find a better partner that's really what it felt like. I, I don't know if you agree, but it seemed like they weren't that into each well, other. Well, she admits that she like sought him out, that like she was interested in his power or drawn to his power. As a no, no, that's later. But, but yeah. as they're moment, going into yeah. the bedroom, it's not very passionate. No. It's not like no, it's they're like, super excited about No, it's like, put on this condom. Other. Here you go. Take off yeah. your pants. It was like a little office meeting or something. Very yeah, cringy. Here we yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah. And then later she confronts him and she says it's hard for me to have sex without an emotional tie and this is meaning to me and what does it mean to you and he's like uh, it didn't mean anything <laughs> yeah but then she asks him what's my name and he's like uh why would i have to give you your name and she's like well do you just have sex with random girls all the time like, no why are you saying that and 
And she's like, you don't know my name. But I think it's when they're handing over the condom. Like, right after sex, he's like, he holds onto the condom. And she's like, give it to me. And he's like, no, I'll put it out in the trash myself. And she's like, no, no, you have to give it to me. And then there's this tension, like, what is she going to do with it? Like, is she going to, like, inseminate herself? Or is she going (laughs) to use it for, like, some malicious intent? And it eventually ends up in, like, a tug of war over the condom. And he does give it to her. And she puts it in a garbage can that she runs off with as if she is going to do something with it. So there's this like... And for some reason, she has a, a chimp as a pet. And, and it's kind of uh, not mentioned. that It's just there in the background. It's just there in the background. Like, she is a great... I think it's a great character. Yeah. And that, that was a great scene. Yeah. And ultimately, like, um, the semen being this, like, representative of male power and he, him having to give it over to her in this, like, receptacle, I think. Was yeah, like, there's a lot of primal yeah. uh, symbols. Anyway, yeah. it was pretty funny. It was pretty, like, de- emasculating in a way that I hadn't seen before in a film. So yeah. I like that. I, it's funny with the cringe humor that uh, I, the first time I saw this movie, it was playing in the theater. It was about the art world. So I was like, okay, I'll go see it. And it was maybe similar to Uncut Gems that about halfway I was very tempted to walk out because I'm just like, why do I have to feel well, terrible to put this for two hours? Myself through this, yeah, yeah. And then I suggested it last week because we were watching Spinal Tap, and Spinal Tap is making fun of uh, rock world, and then this is making fun of art world. So let's discuss it. And then I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to watch it again. And it's two and a half hours. And then I did really enjoy it. it. It's very clever, and there's a lot of sharp observations about human yeah. nature. I mean, at the end of the day, like the one, I, it I asks what, like if you're, but like there's a simple question in the film, which is why wouldn't you help someone that's asking for money on the street, right? Like that is for me is the the basic question the film yeah. asks. Someone's yeah. asking for help. Why wouldn't you help them? And then what turns out is, like, I, I know our listeners are just going through, well, of course I would help this person, but then, but only if they're a woman and only if they're a person of color, but not if they're this and that. And it would be this context. And so there's all these. Well, there little, is a funny moment where he, there's a, a beggar in the 7 Eleven. Mm-hmm. And of course he says, I don't have any cash. And then she says, Ciabatta. <laughs> she wants, she no, wants he a says, sandwich. I'll buy you food, which is like also yeah. a cliche. And it in, and embedded in that is, That's is like what a, I just asked, which is like, you think they're going to use the money for drugs or this or that, right? Like yeah, all of yeah, the yeah. social politics are embedded in that one question. Can you help But me? the funny thing in the scene is that she's very ungrateful. She's not like, oh, thank you for buying me a sandwich. She's like, give me a chicken ciabatta, no onions. Well, yeah, she asked for no onions. And he's like, really? I'm giving you it. But I think even in that is really funny because it's like, if the intent is just to help this other person, what do you care whether they appreciate yeah. it or not? Why and then is it, he throws the sandwich at her and doesn't take out the onions. Like, but, you pick out the But onions. the appreciation for doing the right thing kind of completely nullifies. That's the, that's the crux of this whole thing, which is like you don't need, there should no, be no reward for doing the right thing. If that exists, then there's a whole capital economy built around altruism. And then it's really not altruistic at all because it's social no, capital no. and you're trying to accumulate it, right? Like it, that's the basic, basic yeah, argument of the it, film. It, someone made this argument that the, the, the victory of, of the organic food idea and health food was not in you're making the planet better, but it's better for you. It's better for your health. So there is something to altruism that if you play on people's self-preservation, that you'll get better results. Or so, their like desire to accumulate, right? Like yeah, but so if if you say like okay, you'll help, but then you'll get a badge on Instagram and you'll be a a, a good virtue person, whatever. 
then more people might act. So that there is that weird thing of like motivating people. Yeah, well, just coming out of the, the BLM stuff, obviously there was a lot of virtue signaling. And I even posted like our our response on, face, on, on uh, LinkedIn in regards to what our company did and the money we donated. But actually, as I was posting it, I just, I felt really uncomfortable so much so that I wrote, this is, I'm really uncomfortable virtue signaling. And then someone was like, you're virtue signaling, right? Like Humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, they're absolutely right that, like, if it's the right thing to do, no one needs to know about it. Um, but then again, if you don't do anything, funny, then like, you're kind of like, what, you know, not. Why did you do this one? And why did you never protest the the police abuse in Brazil? But that's, in yeah, that's why it comes down to the bystander effect, which is like, what yeah. is what is it that causes us to act? What causes us to act is not always self-motivated. Sometimes it's like. You know, because we want to do the right thing, so that we're not left out, like that, as prey to the predator. Yeah, um, and so and, and that's yeah. that's where it gets really dicey because if someone is fighting for their own cause, like let's say that your neighborhood is uh, being gentrified and you're fighting against that, then it's very sincere if you're fighting because you are at risk. Mm -hmm. So it's totally believable well, even so in design even in design circles right now the big controversy is like you know design thinking and this idea of empathy and it's been true for a long time is completely flawed if if it's an all white yeah. design team and we're like we're empathetic it's like what so yeah. that you can accumulate no, no. capital for white people doesn't make any sense <laughs> like and so yeah. you but, know but so if you're fighting for whatever uh, injustice is happening to you it's completely believable mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah but that's the and thing and i think i think in the art world there's this contradiction that it's funded by an elite that's completely financially secure. And for them to then say, like, we're fight for a cause, then it's like, why this cause? Why not the other? Uh, why is the message this way? Do you yeah, really believe it? Or It's still empire building, yeah. right? So I think like the, yeah, the solution yeah. I've always had in, in, in some of the works, like I've done, a, I did a museum show where I gave my space to four other artists. But I think the, the idea, like personally, the thing I've grappled with is like, okay, what at what point do I, is it, if I'm inviting other people to the table or creating space for them, I also have to somehow not take credit for that. And it's actually really challenging. And I'll say like something that, you know, I've really struggled to figure out how to do a lot of people. What's the humblest humble? No, but like, I mean, there are artists that are, that are doing this all the time, which is, and one of the first protests I think was in internet art anyway, was people, you know, saying like, Hey, there's not enough women included in this show. Right. And then, like one of the things I saw a lot of artists do is make an effort to say like if they there wasn't great representation, you know, challenge the curator and say, um, hey, how come not? More my me personally, I've done that a lot with money. Like, why aren't these artists being paid, or can I pay for that artist if you're not going to pay that kind of thing? But mm -hmm. you, you you're always caught in this position where you also need to do that quietly you know like it yeah. you can't be like this big thing like look what i did right because then it puts yeah. you back into this position of power so i don't know if people have ideas on how to well i don't know i think it's just something i'm going to continue it, it to was funny uh, there was a show by uh, peter saul i don't know if you know the painter he's he's in his 80s mm -hmm. um, he's kind of comic book like paintings and he started in the 60s yeah and he started. He did a talk in the new museum, and he started out by saying, "I grew up very privileged. We had a maid, and I, you know, I was completely. My parents were economically secure." But he didn't apologize for it. He's just like, "That's how I grew up." Mm -hmm. And then he was a starving artist for a while. And one of the positions he took in his work is, if he made very mysterious work that needed a lot of context to be legible, he would rely on relationships with curators, and he wasn't good at that. 
So he said, I'm going to make paintings that are very interesting, that you see them and you're like, wow, there's so much going on in this, and it's hard to deny the so kind of sensationalist paintings. Mm-hmm. And what he did is just open up the newspaper and there's like Ronald Reagan and there's war in Vietnam, and he, he just puts anything that's the craziest stuff in his paintings in, in a very strange uh, psychedelic way. But it didn't seem that he was putting it there because he had a moral point of view, more just like, this is the world as it is. I'm just putting it in here. Mm-hmm. And it's very attention-grabbing. Like, you see them in a museum next to other paintings, and they just fly at you. Then you can like or dislike the paintings. That's unimportant. But one of the things he said... So his paintings were considered aesthetically offensive. Like, they're just kind of ugly. And especially in the beginning, people are like, wow, that's a horrible painting. That's about the most horrible painting you can make. So that was part of his position. He likes to antagonize and and sort of point the finger at what's wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. But then at the end, they were like asking, what offends you? Is there any type of art that you find offensive? Mm-hmm. And he said, the art that I find most offensive is art with good intentions, that has intentions <laughs> to make the world a better place. He found that so offensive. Interesting. So, uh, uh, you know... I, well, there's like a white, not, there's a kind of white savior, you know, argument there that's probably... No, relevant. but I, I, I think uh, there, there's a lot of... Uh, people of different backgrounds in in music or in film that make antagonistic content that are that are not white so i don't think that's but my point is maybe that being selfish as an artist in the end is generous but i think that's very hard to comprehend yeah you've often made that argument which is like if we really believe in art we should believe in the individual's Right, of any, any, any individual to kind of... Well, no, no. maybe what I'm saying is mm-hmm. you, you can decide as an artist, like, wow, I'm, I'm from a country that supports me and I get all these opportunities that other people don't have, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to step aside and give other people the stage. Yeah. But at the same time, you're not making art anymore. Um, and well, that's relational. <laughs> it's relational aesthetic work. I'm no, just yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, yeah. if someone like Jimi Hendrix comes up with a whole new way of playing the guitar, yeah, and he said to all his girlfriends, like, "Oh, I need new shoes. Can you help me wash the dishes?" And he's like, "No, I have to practice." Yeah, and he just had a selfish life, just obsessed with his guitar. Well, one of the things to I, extreme, I, I totally get. That's it. a contribution. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Uh, no, I, I get what you're saying, and I think one of the the models. Like, let's say, let's say that, that Jimi Hendrix at some point had achieved success and said, "You know what? I'm going to let my students play. I've already shown that I'm the master, and now other people should play." Well, so, I think, no, you only lived 27 years. We want to see you. Yeah, but I think like artists like Beyonce or Bjork, who like have have a history of collaborating with artists and helping you know, get them attention. Yeah, but even they, in the first phase of the year, they were just practicing their craft. No, 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 I know. But once they had power, I think they, they gave or created I, I guess Jimi Hendrix is, is not a good comparison because he died young. So maybe... <laughs> <laughs> like, let's take uh, but, Mick Jagger as how many other musicians has Mick Jagger helped out? Like yeah. zero, right? Yeah. No, I don't know if that's true. I think uh, he sponsored... Z- I just saw a documentary on ZZ Top. They took them on tour and sponsored them. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, ZZ Top but, really but, needed their help. But the, my argument is that for for someone who has a unique way of making things, yeah. it is more generous to explore their craft than for them to step aside and take the role of a facilitator. Yeah, there there are there has to be multiple ways. I just don't think there's a right or wrong way. Um, no, no, but it, 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 exactly like if Ruben Osland 
had the opportunity to make this movie and he said you know what i'm a white guy someone else should make this movie mm -hmm. and instead we're talking about these topics i don't know what's a better contribution well i think another way to do it would be to like invite a collaborator you know i like the idea of co-creation this is personally where that's what this podcast is it's like you know but, the, but a better like idea one comes of the, from dialogue one of the musicians that influenced you uh, that you you mentioned before is someone like Aphex Twin yeah Richard D. James yeah I don't think uh, I think he's exactly a person who's just trapped in a room with equipment all day and doesn't think too much about responsibility no you're right like he's uh, just in a basement. there's no there's no single way of working that's the best but I, I think no there's got to be the right, should, right one for you yeah, but you should not expect artists to be social workers. Well, you, like, but you for, can expect for, them to be socially conscious. I think, like, you could. Like, no, they can't, no, it's I not don't like think, they can't be. I think they they could, but I don't think <laughs> I, I don't think they're required to. to well, anyway, what, what was interesting to me about this director at the, at the end of the day um, is that he has a fascination in sociology, and my my education yeah. is in sociology, and so like for me. What makes peop some people uncomfortable, I'm like, wow, this is like really interesting. Um, and so the, I, I get it. The discomfort is, is if like, I would just say spin, turn the discomfort on its head and think to yourself like, oh my God, what a privilege to have the opportunity to investigate something I don't understand. Anyway, but, um, and to seek to understand is like a pretty cool uh, thing. Um, one thing I might want to add is uh, if we all turned off social media... We would probably have three hours a day left, so we could explore a lot of things. I know. I feel hours. I feel bad because I haven't used Facebook in in like years, and I can't get back into it like an old timer. That's like, <laughs> there's too much in here. I can't do it. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we should probably wrap things up here a little yep. over time. But there's a lot to talk about. Ultimately, <laughs> the film talking about all of art and moral consequence in the so in our society. It's a pretty big film, so. Uh, I encourage you all to watch it if you haven't. And, Try it. Um, we thought we would, you know, continue this. This was supposed to be a, a satirical, comedic thread. Um, and in and fact, the square, the, tragic the, the square, comedic. it is, it is a satire, but it's just like it uses awkward discomfort for an irony. Yeah. But uh, we thought we'd go more traditional comedy, and we were scanning like, well, are there any comedies that are out right now? And there are a couple, um, there's like a new Will Ferrell movie, but it's like kind of about Eurovision, but it's kind of like cringy. And then we saw that there's a new Pete Davidson film, The King of Staten Island. So we were thinking... Maybe we keep it a surprise, which one we review next week. Yeah, will it be Will Ferrell and Eurovision or The King of Staten Island? <laughs> uh, which white guy will win? Uh, and it's also directed at King of Staten Island by Judd Apatow, so that might, I don't know, maybe that'll sway the vote. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that, I guess. Yep. I don't know. All right. <laughs> no pun. No, I have no big ending this week. No. So that's we're going to either watch uh, Eurovision with Will Ferrell or King of Staten Island with uh, Pete Davidson. Yeah. What are we going to listen to now? Maybe we're going to listen to... Well, let's let, surprise, surprise our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for okay. listening. Please, um, Thank you for listening. Please keep feedback coming. It's been great to get some emails from some of you. Yeah. Always good to hear from you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.
very funny.